VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshat Rati. This week, fugitive emissions, big oil's big bet, and sunk costs. While reporting on climate issues, it's impossible to ignore the oil industry. While the industry's denial of climate change has undoubtedly slowed down action to cut emissions, it's crucial to have the industry be a part of the solution because we are on a deadline. One oil company that wants to be a part of that solution is Occidental Petroleum, better known as Oxy. And since 2016, it has been led by Vicky Holub, who is responsible for setting the first science-based climate target for a US oil company. Typically, when oil companies have set climate targets, it has meant a push for renewables, and maybe even a promise to cut oil production in the future. BP is building wind turbines, Shell is investing heavily in hydrogen, and Total is pouring money into lithium-ion batteries. Vicky and Oxy are making a different bet. I think that anybody who says that we can go 100% renewable today is speaking from emotion and passion and not logic. Vicky sees oil and gas consumption rising well into the future and wants to meet Oxy's climate targets by capturing the emissions from the fossil fuels it extracts. What Oxy wants to sell as unbelievable as it might sound, is net zero oil. If that sounds like greenwashing, your instinct is right. Because greenwashing is rife in the oil industry. And that is exactly why the bar is high for any oil company now saying they want to go green. Given the oil industry's heft in the global economy, it's important to hear from those in the seats of power about how they are thinking of acting on the climate crisis. And it is rare to be able to sit down with someone like Wiki who leads one of the world's biggest oil companies and is willing to take all my questions. Before we get into the conversation, it's worth knowing that carbon capture, the main technology that Vicky is relying on, has a long and well-documented history of failure, especially when it comes to its use for climate purposes. Oxy says it can overcome those hurdles. There are two technical terms you should also know going into this interview. We talk a lot about Enhanced Oil Recovery, or EOR, which is a process where carbon dioxide is injected into reservoirs to help produce more oil. We also focus on direct air capture, a technology that extracts carbon dioxide from the air so that it can be permanently stored away. I wanted to hear from Wiki about Oxy's push to build direct air capture facilities, how she plans to pay for all this, and why she's chosen this path as Oxy's response to climate change. Wiki, welcome to Zero. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, as CEO of Oxy, you have made Oxy the first US oil company that has set a net zero by 2050 goal. You were there before your competitors in the US at least. And that covers all emissions. So emissions you produce in your own assets, but also emissions that would be produced by consumers 
burning oil and gas that you produce. Uh, typically, when these goals are to be met by an oil company, they are through moving towards renewables. You are not doing that. You are betting that the world is going to continue to use oil and gas for quite some time. Yeah, I'll start with the reason we're doing it this way. We've been using CO2 for enhanced oil recovery for about 50 years. And we're the largest user of CO2 for enhanced oil recovery in the world. So it's our core competence. And as you said, some companies are are moving toward building and, and distributing renewables. We're not doing that because that's not our core competence. And we feel like our contribution to the world can be a differentiated approach where we will continue to actually grow our oil and gas production, but we'll grow it in a way that gives us the opportunity to generate net zero carbon oil. Now, we'll touch upon different aspects of that answer, but maybe let's just start with the motivation to do it. Was there a moment in your time at Oxy, maybe even before you were CEO, that you thought this is the route that the company must take? Yes, I became general manager of our Permian EOR operations back in 2011. And we did a review of all of our oil and gas conventional assets in the Permian Basin and realized we didn't have enough CO2 to fully develop the resources that we had. So we started looking at other sources to get the CO2. One was anthropogenic. All Wiki is talking about here is the carbon dioxide that comes from burning fossil fuels. You know, the one that's causing all our problems. Later, she also talks about organic CO2. Might sound weird, but if you can find natural gas underground, then it's not shocking that there is also carbon dioxide in the same places. And oil companies have been extracting that CO2, well, for increasing oil production. The Permian Basin is one of the best sources in the world for mining CO2. So getting CO2 from point sources, uh, industrial sites, was a way that we could continue generating incremental oil production. Um, But what we've realized as we went along that something we didn't know was that there was 50% more CO2 in the atmosphere than in pre-industrial times. And so what became very evident to us was that we can not only generate net zero carbon oil with the use of CO2 if we extract it from the air or, or take it from point source uh, industrial sites. We could do that and help the world while we generate net zero carbon oil for the hard to decarbonize industries and create value for our shareholders. So we have a way to help facilitate the climate transition because As you know, and many know, the transition is going to be very costly. And if you can do it in a way that still produces lower cost fuel and energy for the world, that's the best way to do the transition. So how exactly do you think you will make net zero oil? We will produce net zero oil by injecting CO2 in our oil reservoirs, wherever they they may be, starting first in the Permian, then um, our other areas, oil and gas areas around the world. And the way it happens is it takes more CO2 injected into the reservoir to produce the oil than what the oil generated will emit when used. That's fundamentally what makes it a net zero carbon. And technically, the way it works in the reservoir is that there's specific parts of the reservoir that have such a small permeability and porosity 
They're like micropores where the oil is trapped. Uh, water is sometimes used, water flooding, to get more oil out of the reservoir. But the residual oil could not be moved with the water because the water molecules are too big to get in the micropores. So CO2 is a smaller molecule. It can become miscible in the oil. And when it becomes miscible in the oil, even in these small micropores, it increases the oil molecule, makes it less viscous, and it pops out of the micropore. Well, there, there has to be something that goes into that micropore. What goes into that micropore is CO2. So that's how CO2 gets sequestered in oil reservoirs. Yeah. It was interesting for me to think about how to explain this to people. And when I was talking to editors, it's like I, there is... There isn't a tank underground where you no, just tap in. Right. <laughs> it, if you look at the rock where you have oil, it looks like granite. Mm -hmm. Like you will not be able to see that there is oil in there with your naked eyes, but there is oil in those little pores. And I think that picture helps uh, a little maybe to understand what exactly is happening down there because it's so deep. Mm -hmm. uh, you use one billion cubic feet of carbon dioxide a day to be able to do enhanced oil recovery. Now, some of the carbon dioxide that you inject comes back up with the oil. Some of it stays in the ground. Right. However, almost all of the carbon dioxide that you use today comes from actually being mined underground. You call it organic CO2, and you want to transfer that to using anthropogenic or human-created carbon dioxide. That's correct. So... If we look at this decade by decade plan to become a carbon management company, is the first decade essentially cleaning up your own operation, going from using organic CO2 to using human created CO2? That's correct. We will start to convert from organic to atmospheric and anthropogenic in the first phase of our operations. And then beyond that, we'll start developing the incremental resources. And carbon capture as a technology is not new. It's got a 50 year history You've been doing it for two decades? That's correct. Well, actually, longer than that when you consider the fact that capturing carbon, too, can be the process of separating the CO2 from the methane when it comes out of the reservoir. So the technology that can do that has been used for 50 years. Yeah, so initially when carbon capture began as a, as a technology, it wasn't really for climate purposes. It was to make sure that when you were mining gas if there was any associated carbon dioxide, which typically there is, you would separate it out so that when you supply the fuel, people only get the fuel and don't get carbon dioxide alongside it. That's correct, yes. We started using carbon capture technology for climate purposes in the 90s. Uh, Norway was the first country to uh, build a large facility that just captured carbon dioxide from an oil and gas facility and sunk it deep underground. But most of its use currently, as you explained, is for enhanced oil recovery. But we also have to look at recent examples of carbon capture being used for climate purposes. The largest facility to do it on a coal power plant was in the US called Petronova, ran for a few years, and it's now mothballed. Why do you think Oxy will succeed at doing this for climate purposes? The reality is that if, when you're developing technologies that are used for a different purpose, even if they may be used elsewhere, the technology for different purposes, there has to be a sufficient volume of development for the technology to be improved. For example, you look at wind and solar. 
how many wind and solar facilities had to be built to reduce that cost by 80%. For example, Petronova, it was the technology that was put in place. I believe if you, if you looked at how that could be improved, I believe that if you built that again, it would be successful. And if you used it with the right reservoir, they had difficulties with the reservoir they were using it with. And so it didn't work for as efficiently as most reservoirs uh, that we are operating work because it was a different, you have to, you have to be careful with the design and the processing uh, for enhanced oil recovery. Now, net zero oil requires you to, as you explain, put more carbon dioxide into the ground than the carbon dioxide that would be generated if you burn the oil. When will the first shipment of net zero oil through carbon capture come through? Can't tell you that right now because um, what we're facing with our first direct air capture facility is more interest in taking the CO2 and sequestering that in a saline reservoir and or a depleted oil reservoir not to do for enhanced oil recovery. Right. So this will be just for sinking it into the ground for climate purpose so that it's not in the atmosphere and nothing to do with extracting more oil. Not all the the uh, volume. So just to be honest with you, we are getting a lot of requests and a lot of interest in um, corporations that need CO2 offsets because they have net zero goals. And so the companies that are calling us most frequently are those that want the CO2 not to be used for incremental oil production. And so we're, we're making the best decisions that we can for the advancement of further facilities. So ultimately, I believe that putting CO2 in a saline reservoir is a waste of a valuable product. And it's something that, that we should not do on a large-scale basis. It's missing an opportunity um, because I feel like using CO2 in enhanced oil recovery sequesters the CO2. It accomplishes what we need to do. It sequesters the CO2 ultimately, and it generates the net zero carbon oil. And that's what the world needs. Vicky is clear that it makes better sense to use CO2 to get more oil than just sequester it. But other companies want offsets and are willing to pay her a premium to just put it underground. However, if Oxy does that, it won't be able to use the captured CO2 to replace the CO2 it has been mining from underground. And that offset was needed by Oxy itself to create net zero oil and meet its climate goals. So I asked Wiki if selling offsets will derail Oxy's own climate plan. It doesn't derail our plan. It just makes makes it longer for us to get to that plan. Okay. So we, we still have that commitment. We want to make it happen, and, and we will. Okay. You know, it would be remiss for me to not ask, because you did have a carbon-neutral oil shipment go to India, and that was not with offsets that are considered credible by most experts. So why did that happen? Why, why did you take that route, given you know how to do offsets right? Why would they say that that was not from credible sources? Because most of the offsets that exist in the market today are offsets that avoid emissions. 
carbon avoidance. They're not actually sequestering carbon dioxide from the air. If you build a new forest, you may be able to sequester carbon dioxide. Most of the offsets that exist today are renewable energy power plants, which are being built as a theoretical replacement to a coal power plant. So they're saying, we build a solar plant or a wind plant, and we avoid CO2 emissions because we built a renewable energy plant. They're not actually capturing the carbon dioxide. Oh, no. We used a third-party source to purchase our, our credits. Right. And, and those and credits they, were, they were tied valid. to forests. Yeah, they, they were valid. Mm-hmm. They were? Yeah. Are you sure about that? I I would say that I'm, It was. we went through a reputable, very reputable source to get them. Yeah. I don't know if we revealed we bought them through. Yes. But it was it was a very reputable source. Because most of the experts we've talked to in the existing offset market, because what you are building where you're actually capturing carbon mm-hmm. dioxide mm-hmm. and putting it into the ground, that is a very small market right now. The largest direct air capture plant that does it is 4,000 tons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to build something that is 120 times larger uh, in the next two years. But the carbon removal offsets are, you know, essentially negligible part of the carbon offset market. Most of them are avoidance emissions offsets. I would be interested to know Yeah. who says what we did was not credible. I'd, I'd be very keen if you want to share with me who you bought those offsets from, what projects they were attached to. Yeah, I would like to do that That'd because be yeah, we wouldn't have bought credits that we didn't feel were valid. Yeah. Because... We didn't need to do that. What we wanted to do was help the world see that mm-hmm. that what you can do is there is a market for um, premium oil, and premium oil being that that's you know either carbon zero or or net carbon zero. Yes, and I think the most of the offsets projects as they began thirty years ago started with the the right um, heart in place to do good, to mm-hmm. try and mm-hmm. help the world, to try and maybe transfer some of the money from developed countries to developing countries. The trouble has been over the last 30 years, every time they've done it, accounting has been a problem mm-hmm. because carbon removal was so expensive, nobody went down that route. And now finally we are getting to a point where we can actually do carbon removal. Yeah, I, I agree with you that to build a solar facility or wind facility and to expect to claim the the credits or the, the CO2 that wasn't emitted... That's not that's not the way it should be done. Yeah. What do you say to someone who has heard our conversation today and has heard an oil company CEO saying we are going to make net zero oil and then they think this is greenwashing and it's a way to extend the social license and extend the life of oil, which is without controlling for emissions, is the cause for climate change. How do you respond to that? I would say that's true. It's true because... What we need to do is we do need to extend the life of oil production because it's the most intensive energy source. And so we need to do it for the world. It makes the world a better place. What is different and what's most important for people to get is the net zero carbon part of it because too many people are focusing on killing energy sources rather than killing emissions. The common enemy that we all have are the emissions, and that's what we need to control. What our strategy does is it ultimately will produce a better oil, and a net zero oil is the best oil you can produce, and it's the the lowest cost that you can produce for the energy that it will provide. But burning fossil fuels also causes air pollution, and that kills more people 
every year than many of the diseases that we know. So 9 million people a year are killed by air pollution. Half of it is through indoor air pollution when they're burning wood, but half of it is because of oil, mostly, or coal power plants. How would you account for that externality if you do continue to produce net zero oil? You've taken care of the climate problem, but then there's the pollution problem, right? Well, the the pollution, we're addressing the pollution by extracting the CO2 out of the atmosphere. That's a part of it. The volatile organic emissions. Yeah, particulate matter. Yeah, that certainly needs to be addressed. But that, I think, is a lower source, in my view, of what could be causing health issues. Overall, climate, if we don't address it, will be higher eventually. Mm -hmm. But air pollution currently is four and a half million deaths a year. Most of it happens in developing countries. Most of it happens in poor regions. Most of it for a lot of it from coal, though. Yeah, but also oil. I mean, uh, the air pollution death that has sort of shaken the legal world happened here in the UK where a young child was killed and the cause was air pollution. That this was the first time that it was put on the death certificate that air pollution was the cause of that death. They had to go to court to be able to make that case, but because the family lived at a at a junction where air pollution levels are very high. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it, currently it is a bigger health problem. In some areas. Globally, if you just take the average number, and then acute problem in some areas. Mm-hmm. After the break, I ask Wiki about the US climate bill, how exactly Oxy will scale carbon capture, and her relationship with one of the richest men on earth, Warren Buffett. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. So far, we've heard a lot from Vicky about why Oxy plans to produce net zero oil, but not how exactly it will do it. Oxy will need to find a lot of CO2, and Oxy has plans to capture it from ethanol fermentation, from cement plants, and even natural gas power plants. But the one it's betting on first is a technology called direct air capture. And a quick reminder, direct air capture is a technology that removes carbon dioxide from the air so that it can be stored somewhere else. Kind of similar to how you would grab only the chocolate chips from a bag of trail mix. But it is phenomenally energy intensive and expensive to do so. 
And that's why the economics haven't really lined up to do it at scale needed to remove significant amounts of CO2 from the atmosphere. In 2019, when Oxy first announced that it will use direct air capture for extracting more oil, the only way the economics could work was to use some very specific subsidies available back then. But now new incentives in legislations like the Inflation Reduction Act or premium payments from carbon removal offsets may provide a path to make the technology operate at scale. So I asked Wiki, is she surprised to have so many options to pay for direct air capture? I can't say that I'm surprised. I will say that I appreciate the efforts of uh, Senator Manchin and Bill Gates, who was on your, your show not too long ago, um, to to get the Inflation Reduction Act passed was a huge help for us to be able to accelerate what we're doing. And it, it certainly is beneficial to us. But as you know, uh, CO2 credits are likely to to be at a level where we certainly without, ultimately without those credits from IRA, we will be able to make these plants commercial. Um, I just don't believe, and as you were saying earlier in the program, there's, um, there's not enough natural sources that can, um, that can be used for offsets. And so I think CO2 credits are going to be, uh, are going to sell at a premium because there's just not enough available. Right. And so let's talk about the Inflation Reduction Act because Oxy has been involved not in all of the act, but very specifically on the carbon capture side for quite some time. Two years ago, you had under President Trump received a increase in the amount of tax credits provided to carbon capture. Mm -hmm. You got an extension on when those projects could be built. That's now gone a step further with the Inflation Reduction Act. You're getting even more money to be able to capture each ton of CO2 and you're getting a much longer lead time. You can build plants well into the 2030s. How much work did you have to do to make sure that that came through in the Inflation Reduction Act? I think what was helpful to Senator Manchin and others to, um, to design the bill the way they did is to know that there were companies that would commit to build the facilities. You never want to work really hard to pass a bill and then find that it doesn't benefit anybody in any way because nothing happens. And so I think the fact that uh, that we were out there and saying whether the bill passes or not, whether we get incremental credits or not, we're going to build this first facility. And we're going to, beyond that, continue to develop the technology. I think that was helpful to Senator Manchin to know that from the direct air capture standpoint, it was going to happen. Oh, that's interesting. I would think you would want it as a bargaining chip where you would say, look, if you don't get this bill passed, I don't know if you'll build it. You know, you want America to be able to build these technologies, don't you? You're saying the opposite. You're saying, no, 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 not, even if you don't pass the bill, we, we're going to do it. No, but you have to listen to the rest of it. How do you accelerate it? You can only accelerate it if you have that certainty of revenue or, of a, or at least some base revenue coming in. And so that's what enables us to now feel very comfortable that we'll achieve the 70 and maybe even more because we'll be able to accelerate now. That was the chip. That And the United States has no way to to significantly impact CO2 reduction without this happening. Because look at, look at the discussion about 
carbon capture in the United States. There's a lot of people talking about it, but there's not a lot of people that are doing the uh, site prep and getting ready to start building one and building a large one. Yeah, it's surprising to me. I mean, 2019, there was this exuberance in the carbon capture community. You know, we were uh, at Jackson Hole at the Wyoming conference and mm-hmm. there was all this uh, enthusiasm that oh, we'll be building all these facilities. Within months, there'll be announcements. Very little has been built. But uh, this time you think this time is real, it, it'll be different. Well, for us, it's real. I don't know how real it's going to be for anybody else, but we want to do it. To get serious about this, Oxy has invested in a Canadian direct air capture startup called Carbon Engineering. It's one of a growing number of companies that take CO2 out of the air. The amount of energy it takes to remove one ton of CO2 is comparable to the amount of electricity my wife and I consume in an energy efficient London apartment in four months. I wanted to know if Oxy and Carbon Engineering would be using renewable electricity or burning natural gas or, given the amount of energy they need, using both. We will initially, yeah. Because we'll be on the, with the first one, first probably couple, we'll be on the grid, which has both renewables and it has gas. Okay, so you're not building your own gas power plant, you're just going to take it from the grid. That's right. Uh, But you'll account for it. In in addition to our solar plant. But you'll account for it because they'll have some CO2 emissions attached to it. So you'll make sure that when you do the math of how much is captured. That's right. Oxy announced in 2019 it planned to build its first direct air capture facility. But the plan only becomes real when the company makes the final investment decision, costing hundreds of millions of dollars. I was told in May that the decision will be made soon. So I asked Vicky, has it been made? It has been made. So we've actually started site construction and um, we're having um, the, I guess, the groundbreaking on November 29th, but we're working already to prepare the site. So construction begins November 29th. You will That's have, the groundbreaking. Yep. And then two years later, it'll be fully functioning. What happens in the middle? You're going to have to do some testing. When do you think you'll do the first capture, so to speak, even if it's released? With that facility? Yeah. I haven't looked at the the chart yet, but I would imagine that'll be in early 2024 because okay. it could be mid-2024 or late 2024 to get the facility up and running. Right. And then you have a plan to not just build this one, but 70. Five, that right? 75. 75. Okay. And that'll be a million ton each? Yes. So this one is half in a way because you're going to then scale that up to a million tons. Yes. All of this is going to be expensive because A, the technology is new, and B, the energy requirements are quite high. So what funds the first facility then? Where is the money coming from? What we'll likely do is it'll be a combination of the sale of the CO2 credits and our own cash. Right. We have options. And what we're ensuring that we do right now is keep our options open because we have a lot of interest in the CO2 as credits for other corporations. Uh, once you prove the technology, once you, or at least how it works together, once you prove that, then you have the option of project financing. Uh, we also have the option of bringing in equity partners who might want to help develop this as we go along. So we have, we have lots of options on how to fund it. And what we don't want to do, though, is uh, we don't want to give up too much of our upside on what we believe will be a profitable business um, pretty quickly. And uh, so we're, we're trying to keep our options open for now. 
I cannot not ask you about your larger shareholder, Warren Buffett, who now owns more than 20% of the company. And uh, he is buying every share he can as soon as it drops below $60 a share for, for Roxy. What's your relationship with him like? I have a great relationship with him. I go visit him regularly. And um, and we, we have conversations. Uh, a lot of times when I go, we might spend only you know, 20, 30 percent of the time on Oxy, and then we talk about other things. So I, I'm having the opportunity to learn from him, too, which has been really, really good for me personally. And is he supportive of this carbon management strategy? Because one of the things he is very good at is investing in companies that will provide return. Is he convinced that what you're doing with carbon management will be the kind of return that he will get from a company he is so heavily invested in? I can tell you that, first of all, let me clarify that what I'm about to say does not come from what he has said. Um, because with our shareholders, I try to be really careful about not disclosing individual conversations. But I will say that, um, generally speaking, you could deduce from everything he said in the past that he doesn't want to invest in companies that can't deliver returns. And a company that has the ability to deliver significant cash is important. And so how we allocate our capital is important. And so we we need to always be a company, not just for Berkshire, but for all of our shareholders. We need to generate returns. How do you see the next few years playing out with having to deal with energy needs while meeting climate goals? I really think that we have to build a plan and have to somehow get it accepted by the world where we are we're doing all of the above. We're we're building lots of solar, lots of wind, we're building electric vehicles at a faster pace. We're developing as quickly as we can industrial size battery storage, um, energy storage, um, but where we're also continuing the development of oil and gas, but in a much more responsible way than we've ever done before as an industry. And that means addressing methane emissions aggressively. And other companies are committing to do the same, and that's to, uh, to have a target to get to net zero methane by 2030. We're trying to think about how do we capture from our larger facilities the emissions that may be happening and re-inject underground into our reservoir so that we're reducing those emissions. Ultimately, though, we're going to have to to go to the use of valves and flanges that, that don't have fugitive emissions. As a side, I just love the term fugitive emissions <laughs> because <laughs> it's like... That is a crime. Methane leaking is, is a crime. It is. The, yeah, you know, catching agree. them as fugitives is, yeah, is yeah. the right right. Uh, yeah. I don't image. know who coined it, but it is right. <laughs> now, you've made a case for carbon capture as a necessary option for the transition. Maybe that is the majority view, but there are voices that say, you know, we can do this with all renewables. We'll add batteries. We'll add maybe nuclear. We don't need to have fossil fuels in the mix. And this is kind of a, a philosophical debate after a point. You can look at numbers, you can look at data, you can look at scenarios, uh, but after a point, it's a judgment call. 
why do you think your judgment call is the right one rather than the 100% renewables people? I don't mean to be offensive here, but Europe is a live case study. People really need to give that some thought. And anybody that says that we can go 100% renewable today without significant advancement in the technology of battery storage, which I think ultimately will come, but it's not here today. And you cannot hope that it'll be here in five years. You can't hope that it'll be here in 10 years, because if you do, you put yourself at risk. So I think that anybody who says that we can go 100% renewable today is speaking from emotion and passion and not logic, and definitely not scientifically based. And I worry about the United States and some of the pressure in the United States to move away from fossil fuels. Right now, we're the largest producer of oil uh, in the world. We're the largest exporter of LNG in the world right now. So we are essentially energy independent. That doesn't mean that today we're producing all the oil that we need all to meet the demand in the United States, um, but it means we do have the resource to do that if we needed to do that. That puts the United States in a position of significant strength. We need allies that, are, that have strength too. And where the world is headed, it's becoming a, a more volatile place. And without energy independence, uh, I think that some countries will experience not only difficulties within their own country to provide energy for their, their people, but a, a weaker position in the United States should the politics and should the geopolitical tensions continue to grow as they have recently. I think you make an interesting point about national security and energy independence, but also it's easy to make that while you are in the United States because you are endowed with fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And you are endowed with an economy that is capable of extracting those fossil fuels. Most of the world is not in that place. India does not have fossil fuels. It has coal, but it doesn't have enough oil, doesn't have enough gas. It is endowed with renewables. And so you're going to have to take different paths in different places. So some countries will have to double down on renewables because that's their path to energy independence, right? That's right. But, but the countries that don't have the natural resources to be able to be energy independent, need to ally with those that, that do. There's still a lot of oil to be produced in Africa, but the investment in Africa is declining. And so there's, um, there's a lot of uh, oil and gas in South America, but the countries now in South America are going away from oil and gas. And so where are they going to be in five years or 10 years? South America, many of the countries there are going to be in a much weaker position. And um, the problem is that the stronger countries in the world can't defend everybody yeah. and can't provide um, energy to everybody. And so the world becomes a more difficult place for a lot of regions. And, and when the Pope and others have talked about a just transition, having a just transition means that, that we have to help countries to use their own natural resources for energy independence and or to develop their economies so that their people have a better quality of life. That's something that I think we as Europe needs to do. We need to do it. And so for these countries that like to tout we're moving away from oil and gas and uh, we're not going to use it anymore, we're going to go to 100% renewables, that 
that actually makes it more difficult for the developing countries to have a, a, a way to develop their, their natural resources. When do you think the demand for oil will peak? I think the demand for oil is not going to peak any time in the next five to ten years. I think it'll be beyond that. And if you see that it has peaked, what will be the steps you would take in return? So say there is a, a pretty credible analysis uh, coming from a colleague I highly respect on the opinion side, David Fickling, whose calculations show we are either peaking this year or we peaked in 2019. Typically with these peaks, you won't know for a couple of years whether that's actually true. Mm -hmm. But if it is true, would that change any calculation for you? Our our calculation going forward is to, with the carbon management part of our business, is to make our oil more attractive than others. So it would impact certainly um, how we look at closely at what others are doing, but um, with the fact that the Europeans are going more toward renewables and decreasing oil production, with South America, essentially with the governments that are that are coming into place right now uh, will be, I think, except you know, maybe a country or two, the rest will be declining oil, oil production. Uh, Africa is declining production. So I think that there has to be some country that steps up to make up that difference. And I, I think the countries that will make that, up that difference should be Saudi Arabia, the UAE and the United States. Now, coming back to carbon management, it's a broad phrase. Mm -hmm. How are you going to look at the balance of Oxy's revenues in 2050? You may not be chief executive officer then, but if you are to imagine this is where you're taking the company, what portion would be making money from extracting carbon and what may be making money from injecting carbon? If our plan works the way that we'd like for it to, our revenues from uh, our capture of carbon for ourselves and others would equal the oil and gas revenues. And that's understanding that we don't intend to um, reduce our oil and gas as some are. We intend to develop our oil and gas so that it matches, helps to match demand. And so... And we believe that using uh, CO2 for enhanced oil recovery and generating the net zero barrels is the way to uh, to be the last company standing in terms of who's going to produce the last barrel in the world. It should come from a, a CO2 enhanced oil recovery reservoir and, and process. That was a great conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. It was uh, great to be here and great to talk to you. I appreciate Vicky's candor and hearing from an oil executive who is doubling down on what she already does. I was surprised though that particulate matter air pollution didn't factor into the net zero oil calculation. Unsurprisingly, Vicky is bullish on oil demand. But if oil demand decreases, she sees the strategy of injecting carbon as a hedge in a world that needs those services. Given the history of the oil industry, all these claims require immense scrutiny to hold the industry accountable. Thanks so much for listening to Zero. 
If you like the show, please rate, review and subscribe. Tell a friend or tell someone who doesn't know about oil's boom and bust cycle. If you've got a suggestion for a guest or topic or something you just want us to look into, get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Many people help make the show a success. This week, thanks to my Bloomberg News colleague, Kevin Crowley, for preparing for this interview and who recently published a great article about the great Exxon exodus that you can check out at bloomberg.com slash green. I'm Akshat Rati, back next week.